Section 12 of Part 1 of Volume 1A of the History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1A, Section 12. Chapter 2, Part 5. Edred. The reign of this prince, as those of his predecessors, was disturbed by the rebellions and incursions of the Northumbrian Danes, who, though frequently quelled, were never entirely subdued, nor had ever paid a sincere allegiance to the crown of England. The accession of a new king seemed to them a favorable opportunity for shaking off the yoke, but on Edred's appearance with an army, they made him their wanted submissions, and the king, having wasted the country with fire and sword as a punishment of their rebellion, obliged them to renew their oaths of allegiance, and he straight retired with his forces. The obedience of the Danes lasted no longer than the present terror. Provoked at the devastations of Edred, and even reduced by necessities to subsist on plunder, they broke into a new rebellion, and were again subdued. But the king, now instructed by experience, took greater precautions against their future revolt. He fixed English garrisons in their most considerable towns, and placed over them an English governor, who might watch all their motions, and suppress any insurrection on its first appearance. He obliged also Malcolm, king of Scotland, to renew his homage for the lands which he held in England. Edred, though not unwarlike, nor unfit for active life, lay under the influence of the lowest superstition, and had blindly delivered over his conscience to the guidance of Dunstan, commonly called St. Dunstan, abbot of Glastonbury, whom he advanced to the highest offices, and who covered, under the appearance of sanctity, the most violent and most insolent ambition. Taking advantage of the implicit confidence reposed in him by the king, this churchman imported into England a new order of monks, who much changed the state of ecclesiastical affairs, and excited on their first establishment the most violent commotions. From the introduction of Christianity among the Saxons there had been monasteries in England, and these establishments had extremely multiplied by the donations of the princes and nobles whose superstition, derived from their ignorance and precarious life, and increased by remorses for the crimes into which they were so frequently betrayed, knew no other expedient for appeasing a deity than a profuse liberality toward the ecclesiastics. But the monks had hitherto been a species of secular priests, who lived after the manner of the present canons or prebendaries, and were both intermingled in some degree with the world, and endeavored to render themselves useful to it. They were employed in the education of youth, they had the disposal of their own time and industry, they were not subject to the rigid rules of an order, they had made no vows of implicit to their superiors, and they still retained the choice, without quitting the convent, either of a married life or a single life. But a mistaken piety had produced in Italy a new species of monks, called Benedictines, who, carrying farther the planned sibyl principles of mortification, secluded themselves entirely from the world, renounced all claim to liberty, and made a merit of the most inviolable chastity. These practices and principles, which superstition at first engendered, were greedily embraced and promoted by the policy of the court of Rome. The Roman pontiff, who was making every day great advances toward an absolute sovereignty over the ecclesiastics, perceived that the celibacy of the clergy alone could break off entirely their connection with the civil power, 
and depriving them of every other object of ambition, engaged them to promote, with unceasing industry, the grandeur of their own order. He was sensible that so long as the monks were indulged in marriage, and were permitted to rear families, they could never be subjected to strict discipline or reduced to that slavery under their superiors, which was requisite to procure the mandates issued from Rome a ready and zealous obedience. Celibacy, therefore, began to be extolled as the indispensable duty of priests, and the Pope undertook to make all the clergy throughout the Western world renounce at once the privilege of marriage, a fortunate policy, but at the same time an undertaking the most difficult of any, since he had the strongest propensities of human nature to encounter, and found that the same connections with the female sex, which generally encouraged devotion, were here unfavorable to the success of his project. It is no wonder, therefore, that this master-stroke of art should have met with violent contradiction, and that the interests of the hierarchy and the inclination of the priests, being now placed in this singular opposition, should, notwithstanding the continued efforts of Rome, have retarded the execution of that bold scheme during the course of near three centuries. Dunstan was born of noble parents in the west of England, and being educated under his uncle, Aldhelm, then Archbishop of Canterbury, had betaken himself to the ecclesiastical life, and had acquired some character in the court of Edmund. He was, however, represented to that prince as a man of licentious manners, and finding his fortune blasted by these suspicions, his ardent ambition prompted him to repair his indiscretions by running into an opposite extreme. He secluded himself entirely from the world. He framed a cell so small that he could neither stand erect in it, nor stretch out his limbs during his repose, and here he employed himself perpetually, either in devotion or in manual labor. It is probable that his brain became gradually crazed by these solitary occupations, and that his head was filled with chimeras, which, being believed by himself and his stupid votaries, procured him the general character of sanctity among the people. He fancied that the devil, among the frequent visits which he paid him, was one day more earnest than usual in his temptations, till Dunstan, provoked at his importunity, seized him by the nose with a pair of red-hot pincers, as he put his head into the cell, and he held him there till that malignant spirit made the whole neighborhood resound with his bellowings. This notable exploit was seriously credited and extolled by the public. It is transmitted to posterity by one who, considering the age in which he lived, may pass for a writer of some elegance, and it ensured to Dunstan a reputation which no real piety, much less virtue, could, even in the most enlightened period, have ever procured him with the people. Supported by the character obtained in his retreat, Dunstan appeared again in the world, and gained such an ascendant over Edred, who had succeeded to the crown, as made him not only the director of that prince's conscience, but his counsellor in the most momentous affairs of government. He was placed at the head of the treasury, and being thus possessed both of power at court and of credit with the populace, he was enabled to attempt with success the most arduous enterprises. Finding that his advancement had been owing to the opinion of his austerity, he professed himself a partisan of the rigid monastic rules, and after introducing that reformation into the convents of Glastonbury and Abingdon, he endeavoured to render it universal in the kingdom. The minds of men were already well prepared for this innovation. The praises of an inviolable chastity had been carried to the highest extravagance by some of the first preachers of Christianity among the Saxons. The pleasures of love had been represented as incompatible with Christian perfection, and a total abstinence from all commerce with the sex was deemed such a meritorious penance as was sufficient to atone for the greatest enormities. 
the consequence seemed natural that those at least who officiated at the altar should be cleared of this pollution and when the doctrine of transubstantiation which was now creeping in was once fully established the reverence to the real body of christ and the eucharist bestowed on this argument an additional force and influence the monks knew how to avail themselves of all these popular topics and to set off their own character to the best advantage they affected the greatest austerity of life and manners they indulged themselves in the highest strains of devotion they inveighed bitterly against the vices and pretended luxury of the age they were particularly vehement against the dissolute lives of the secular clergy their rivals every instance of libertinism in any individual of that order was represented as a general corruption and where other topics of defamation were wanting their marriage became a sure subject of invective and their wives received the name of concubine or other more opprobrious appellation the secular clergy on the other hand who were numerous and rich and possessed of the ecclesiastical dignities defended themselves with vigour and endeavoured to retaliate upon their adversaries the people were thrown into agitation and few instances occurred of more violent dissensions excited by the most material differences in religion or rather by the most frivolous since it is a just remark that the more affinity there is between theological parties the greater commonly is their animosity the progress of the monks which was become considerable was somewhat retarded by the death of edred their partisan who expired after a reign of nine years he left children but as they were infants his nephew edwy son of edmund was placed on the throne edwy at the time of his accession was not above sixteen or seventeen years of age was possessed of the most amiable figure and was even endowed according to authentic accounts with the most promising virtues he would have been the favorite of his people had he not unhappily at the commencement of his reign been engaged in a controversy with the monks whose rage neither the graces of the body nor virtues of the mind could mitigate and who had pursued his memory with the same unrelenting vengeance which they exercised against his person and dignity during his short and unfortunate reign there was a beautiful princess of the royal blood called elgiva who had made impression on the tender heart of edwy and as he was of an age when the force of the passions first began to be felt he had ventured contrary to the advice of his gravest counsellors and the remonstrances of the more dignified ecclesiastics to espouse her though she was within the degrees of affinity prohibited by the canon law as the austerity affected by the monks made them particularly violent on this occasion edwy entertained a strong prepossession against them and seemed on that account determined not to second their project of expelling the seculars from all the convents and of possessing themselves of those rich establishments war was therefore declared between the king and the monks and the former soon found reason to repent his provoking such dangerous enemies on the day of his coronation his nobility were assembled in a great hall and were indulging themselves in that riot and disorder which from the example of their german ancestors had become habitual to the english when edwy attracted by softer pleasures retired into the queen's apartment and in that privacy gave reins to his fondness towards his wife which was only moderately checked by the presence of her mother dunstan conjectured the reason of the king's retreat and carrying along with him odo archbishop of canterbury over whom he had gained an absolute ascendant he burst into the apartment upbraided edwy with his lasciviousness probably bestowed on the queen the most opprobrious epithet that can be applied to her sex and tearing him from her arms pushed him back in a disgraceful manner into the banquet of the nobles 
Edwy, though young and opposed by the prejudices of the people, found an opportunity of taking revenge for this public insult. He questioned Dunstan concerning the administration of the treasury during the reign of his predecessor, and when that minister refused to give any account of money expended, as he affirmed by orders of the late king, he accused him of malversation in his office and banished him the kingdom. But Dunstan's cabal was not inactive during his absence. They filled the public with high panegyrics on his sanctity. They exclaimed against the impiety of the king and queen, and having poisoned the minds of the people by these declamations, they proceeded to still more outrageous acts of violence against the royal authority. Archbishop Odo sent into the palace a party of soldiers who seized the queen, and having burned her face with the rod-hot iron in order to destroy that fatal beauty which had seduced Edwy, they carried her by force into Ireland, there to remain in perpetual exile. Edwy, finding it vain to resist, was obliged to consent to his divorce, which was pronounced by Odo, and a catastrophe still more dismal awaited the unhappy Algiva. That amiable princess, being cured of her wounds, and having even obliterated the scars with which Odo had hoped to deface her beauty, returned into England, and was flying to the embraces of the king whom she still regarded as her husband, when she fell into the hands of a party whom the primate had sent to intercept her. Nothing but her death could now give security to Odo and the monks, and the most cruel death was requisite to satiate their vengeance. She was hamstringed, and expired a few days after at Gloucester in the most acute torments. The English, blinded with superstition, instead of being shocked with this inhumanity, exclaimed that the misfortunes of Edwy and his consort were just judgment for their dissolute contempt of the ecclesiastical statutes. They even proceeded to rebellion against their sovereign, and having placed Edgar at their head, the younger brother of Edwy, a boy of thirteen years of age, they soon put him in possession of Mercia, Northumberland, East Anglia, and chased Edwy into the southern counties. That it might not be doubtful at whose instigation this revolt was undertaken, Dunstan returned into England and took upon him the government of Edgar and his party. He was first installed in the See of Worcester, then in that of London, and on Odo's death and the violent expulsion of Brithelm, his successor, in that of Canterbury, of all which he long kept possession. Odo is transmitted to us by the monks under the character of a man of piety. Dunstan was even canonized, and is one of those numerous saints of the same stamp who disgrace the Romish calendar. Meanwhile the unhappy Edwy was excommunicated, and pursued with unrelenting vengeance, but his death, which happened soon after, freed his enemies from all future inquietude and gave Edgar peaceable possession of the government. End of section 12. Recording by S. T. Macduff.